On the 28th of November 1979, an Air New Zealand sightseeing flight TE-901 crashed into the side of Mount Erebus in Antarctica. All 257 passengers and crew on board were instantly killed. At the time here in New Zealand, it seemed like everyone knew someone connected to the tragedy. I knew someone too. Over the years, we've heard a lot of stories about Erebus, the cover-up, the court case, the controversy. But here's some stories you might not know. Hi, I'm Lizzie Oakes, and when I was 10, I lost my nan, Muriel Florence Rose Harrison, to Erebus. 40 years later, I'm a broadcaster, and on this podcast, Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts, I'm speaking with others whose lives have been impacted by the disaster. Episode 6, Our Jim Daddy. Jim Collins was the captain of the fatal flight, and I've often wondered how his family coped after losing their much-loved husband and father, and then to have him falsely accused of causing the crash. His eldest daughter, Catherine Carter, agreed to come and share her precious memories with me. Catherine Carter, so nice to have you here today on the podcast. Thank you very much, Lizzie. Well, you and I have spoken on the phone a few times, and I said to you, oh, you know, I wasn't actually going to contact you because I felt that you'd probably had enough talking to people over the years. And then, of course, we've got a mutual friend, the Reverend Richard War, who yes. kind of introduced us, and he's he's amazing. So. Yes, indeed. And I think um, there's so much that can be said and so much that isn't said and so much more needs to be said. So it's a, it's a wonderful opportunity to be able to talk to you. Thank you. So your dad, Jim Collins, um, it's a name that many New Zealanders will know, of course, but we don't know him like like you knew him. He was your dad. Can you tell me what he was like as a dad? Our Jim Daddy. Um, dad was a really hands-on father. He um, he was always very um, fair and warm and kind to us, and, and, you know, he always pitched in like he... He'd help with jobs. He always, you know, said that if he was away, you know, he couldn't be around to help mum, but he was always happy just to, you know, set the table or do the vacuuming or hang the washing out for her and if it meant that we could all be a team together and do something else like go for a picnic or go on the boat. You know, he was willing just to pitch in so that we could all get the jobs done and then get on with the day as opposed to um, telling us to do them and he was going to do something else. So he was very much a do as I do, as I do not do as I say person. And so he kind of... that meant that we grew up with a very fair um, parent um, parental upbringing because both mum and dad got on really well and they had a really good marriage and I guess that was probably ultimately one of the tragedies for us too was that our parents were separated by circumstance and um, but you know while we were growing up he was just he was um, whatever he liked to clown around you know he'd give us um, piggyback rides and, and spider rides you know on his hands and knees and we'd be sort of you know clowning around with them and my younger sisters because I'm the eldest and I've got three younger sisters but you know whatever age we were at he, he always found something fun to do with with us like one of my sisters I remember used to um they used to you know when they were young four four or three they'd sit on his knee and he used to like um bread and jam after lunch he loved boysenberry jam Mum used to make really nice boysenberry jam so he'd put some on some Vogel's bread and he'd sit he'd sit whoever it was on his knee and and um, he'd he'd put the piece of the, the cut piece of bread up to his, his mouth and then sort of look away as if he was looking at the paper or look to the side. And one of the the two ever was sitting on his knee would take a bite out of it and then he'd be you know he'd look at it and he'd be mock surprised there was a piece of t- piece of bread missing. You know so it was a, it was sort of a joke, but it was just you know that that sort of fun stuff that's really in- incidental but makes up a life. You know yeah yeah. Um, 
and when you got a sense of humor, I mean, he was he was serious about things like safety, um, but just you know, and, and boating or getting in the car, anything to do with machinery, he was always very respectful of. You know, he he used to say, you can't just kick a machine if it doesn't work. You've got to fix it. You can't just sort of hope that it'll just start working because it's it's you know it's a logical machines are logical and they need maintenance and you have to look after them and. Yeah, so he he was always disciplined about boating. You know, if we were going on the boat, we'd have to wear life jackets. It had to be enough life jackets for everyone on board. Um, there'd be he would we wouldn't go if the weather was going to be inclement because it was risky and unpleasant for people if they're at sea or you know in an environment where they're in a confined space and it's rough. You know, you don't want to be inflicting unpleasant things on people. So he was very wary of that. Even beeping at people, I'd say, oh, there's so-and-so in the street and we're in the car. And he'd say, no, no, I'm not tooting them because it might alarm them, you know, that, that sort of thing. So there was a lot of those sorts of memories. When we travelled, he'd always say, right, you guys, you sit over there in the queue. We, there's no point all of us queuing at the front of the queue and taking up room. There's six of us in the family. So you guys sit over there and two of us will queue for this for the, I don't know, ticketing or whatever it was, you know. And and so he was always aware of the spatial dimension of other people being in the space and 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 to not taking up too much space unnecessarily if there were other people trying to do something that was important around you. So he had an awareness of other people. It was quite, I, from quite a young age, I was aware of that. Other people matter, not just us. So four girls, does that mean, does he teach you girls practical stuff like mowing the lawns and all that? Oh, absolutely, yes. We learned how to, look, to use the um, hand mower um, and... Um, he used to complain about even the cat was female. We had a, we had a female <laughs> cat, so there were five women in the cat in his family, in his life, um, which he used to laugh about. But, yeah, he definitely he had a workshop. He had his old Air Force overalls in the workshop hanging up, and then he'd make things um, like a boat. You know, I mean, I remember once reading a story about um, that had it featured a boat, and it was a book called Borker, and there was the boat called the Abercrombie in it, and it was a, I think it was one of those canal boats, and so he said he'd make it for us. So he went down to the workshop and he made up, got some pieces of wood, and then made them into a shape of a, the Abercrombie, and he even painted it in the colours of the boat. So we we could even help with that. Cool. So you know he sort of brought alive, he brought things alive to us about what we could, you know, what you could do if you imagined that something you could actually make things happen, um, and also encourage us to research. That, you know, information, and, and he was given a $500 um, bequest from one of his uncles um, when he died in the 1970s, and so with it, Dad bought a set of um, encyclopedias and that for us to use to refer to. So if we said, oh, you know, where's, I don't know, Spain, he'd say, well, just go and look it up, you know. So we had to do research, you know, which is always, sometimes we sort of tried to avoid asking him questions because we knew we'd have to research something or do some homework on it. He wouldn't just give us the answer. Yeah. Yeah. So um, he taught us a lot about the stars, you know, the the weather, the clouds. You know, I'd say, what sort of cloud? That's a funny looking cloud that look like, looks like a feather or something. He'd say, oh, yes, well, that's a, that's a um, you know, a cirrus cloud, which is what you get in summer weather when you get stable Conditions and um, you know the cumulus weather, the clouds are when it's when the weather, winds winds are you know winds are high and you get them more in the winter. And he taught us about um, weather systems, low pressure systems, high pressure systems, stars, the Southern Cross position of Orion's Belt, and how people used to navigate by the stars, and what an achievement that was. So he taught us about the world in a lot of ways and making it accessible to us. 
um, or at least teaching us that we could make it accessible to ourselves if we did the if we made the effort to, which kind of is empowering as a child because you totally it means you can find answers to things. It's neat because I would think quite a lot of dads wouldn't actually do that. They've just you know. He sounds very um, focused on his, you know, his role as a parent that he took it very, in a fun way, he took yeah, it seriously. he did take it seriously and he was fun. I mean, he he, he had, a, you know, he was happy to laugh. I mean, he had a lot of laughs. You know, there was a lot of joking and, you know, he, he had a sense of humour. He always had a twinkle in his eye, you know, and, um, and we kind of always knew that he was on our side, even if he was trying to make it a bit more difficult for us to find out answers. He, he, he kind of knew that he was making us jump through a hoop so that we'd learn ourselves mm-hmm. about something. Mm. And I think that probably set us in good stead later um, because I sat my school C exam after he, he died and that I did that partly because he'd helped me. I mean, well, we didn't sleep at all virtually that night, but um, the 28th obviously, but um, my intention was to sit the exam even on no sleep because I thought, well, he'd help me. It was 9 o'clock in the morning and it was a science exam and he'd help me with um, dynamos, electricity, um, understanding generators, and I thought, well, it was part of the science curriculum and he'd helped me with it and he would have been disappointed if I hadn't. I just knew that he would have been. So I thought no matter what the circumstances of this is, which, which I knew, I mean, obviously everything had changed, but I thought for him I'll, I'll sit the exam because I thought, well, you know, I mean, I've got to start, I've got to keep going as a, in a way that he would want me to, to keep going, mm. not just stop because would, would he would have been disappointed, I think. So, Catherine, where were you when you heard the news of the crash? Um, well, we got the news at about one in the morning, but we were at home from, um, oh, we were home all day pretty much. I mean, I'd been studying um, and mum got a phone call about six o'clock from flight operations to say that the aeroplane was missing and that mum should get someone to be with her family. You know, my grandparents lived around the corner, her parents, so she, so they came over and we were waiting because we didn't know, you know, something had happened to the aircraft as far as we knew, but we didn't know what. And we, so we were thinking, oh, maybe they've landed in, on an iceberg or something because I knew that they weren't supposed to be landing in the Antarctic, which was immediately a problem. A, a it's a problem, and B, it's cold, you know. So I was thinking, should that, you know, what does this mean? And maybe if they land on an iceberg, then they've got out of the plane, which case they'll be cold, which won't be good. And then... Is that what you and your sisters sort of thought, do you think? Well, probably. I mean, Elizabeth was there with me. I think Pip and Dee, my younger two sisters, weren't. I don't remember them being in that conversation at that point. They're probably having a bath, or you know, they were not in the room. But but I remember thinking, imagining, you know, a plane with its wings out on an iceberg or on the sea, floating there, and passengers getting off, and Dad sort of being the last person off because it would have been that's what he would have done. And everyone was cold, and I was thinking, how they're going to get warm, and that doesn't sound good. It's interesting that you say that because I'm a little bit younger than you. I was 10 at the time, and I actually imagined the same thing. But I've realised... Did you? Never heard anyone say that. I, I thought, oh, oh, Nan will be all right. They're just, like you say, on an iceberg. And, Floating. And oh. somebody will come and rescue mm. them. And, yeah, so mm. I imagined the same thing. Mm, interesting. It's hard to imagine them not alive. I mean, I guess it's the worst thing to try and imagine is people not being alive. Yeah, so we we waited and waited, and then nine o'clock, the news. Um, I think it was, was it Bill McCarthy or Philip Sherry? I'm one, not sure. Yeah, one of the two. I yeah, think. was saying that there would be the plane would run out of fuel by now, and it was there. You know, I was thinking, oh, that's not good. And then it wasn't until, and then my grandfather said, I should try. I should. He said, oh, you should go to bed because you should try and get some sleep for for your exam. And I remember thinking, yeah, I probably should, but I, I know I won't because <laughs> you know how do you sleep? 
with this going on. And so, um, and then the lights all stayed on and on and on. I remember dozing. I must have maybe dozed a bit. And then I, I woke up at about one in the morning and the lights were still on. I went up, I happened to go upstairs to sort of see what was happening, obviously, um, to find out whether there'd been any news. And that was when they'd said, they said whoever was sitting around the table, um, it was my, my mother and my grandparents and Carl Barron, who was a family friend, who was also, he was Czech and he was a European, like my grandparents who were, you know, Austrian. He'd been, unlike them, he'd been in a concentration camp because he, he had a number tattooed on his arm. You know, I remember him sitting there and looking at him and looking at my grandparents and my mother and thinking, it's not good, you know, it's just something's happened and it's not good. And then I think he said or my mother said or somebody said to them around the table, they're, they're you know, they found the wreckage on the slopes of Mount Erebus and they're all dead. They're all, they're dead, you know. I was thinking, just couldn't really, I just thought, no, it can't, you know, Dad can't be dead, you know. He's not the sort of person that would be in a situation that he placed himself in such great peril. I just, it was a huge shock. And I remember thinking, oh, every, this, is just, this is just, everything's going to change, you know, my childhood's over. It's all going to be different. This is all different now. The landscape's changed suddenly. You know, everything's changed. Mm. And it's quite frightening when you have to think of that because you don't don't really know how it's going to change, but I just knew everything. And suddenly there was a great sense of vulnerability. I felt quite vulnerable when I, I hadn't actually up until that point because my parents was, were protective. You know, suddenly the world's a dangerous place and and there weren't enough answers and I didn't really know how to asked the questions that needed answering anyway because I was, you know, 15. And I was thinking, poor mum, and oh, now dad's not here and he won't be able to help us anymore with all of the, all our questions. <laughs> and just, yeah, it was just sad, you know, it's just really, he can't conceive of the future really because it's too big. So you have to take it bit by bit. And I thought, oh, well, I better, you know, this is awful. Obviously, all these adults can't cope. I mean, it's going to be hard to cope, but I'd probably better go to bed and I should try and sit my exam. So I think I went to bed at that point and then probably didn't sleep all night, but I did get up in the morning and went to school and and queued in alphabetical order because that's, that's what you had to do. And then everybody at school wasn't talking. Nobody talked to me. I think everybody was too shocked to say anything. They put me in alphabetical order, but slightly out of alphabetical order um, because I sat in a different classroom and one of my friends said to me afterwards, Rebecca said, oh, she sat behind me when I sat the school exam and she said she remembers me sobbing, but I don't remember that. I just remember I wrote it. And then I I, um, completed the paper and just thought, right, well, that's it. I've done that now. And and that kind of didn't really matter. I didn't even feel nervous. I didn't really care. I mean, I just sat and thought, well, if I don't pass, I don't really care. And anyways, it transpired, I did. I did pass with a 65% um, pass, which was pretty average, but at least I still was able to get the material down it needed to do, get the job done, and then, move. you know, go home. I don't know what to. I remember thinking I'm going home, but, you know, it's just... And then people kept turning up. People just, people just um, came to our house, and there were flowers everywhere. People just kept coming and bringing baking. And at some point in the next few days, we had a service on my grandparents' lawn because they had a half an acre in St. Helia's on the north side of the house. And um, we just had a memorial service. And I remember the lawn, it was half an acre of lawn, was full of people. And there was no memorial book. So I guess there was probably 
1,500, 2,000 people would have been there. It could be more, it could be less, I'm not sure, but it was a, the lawn was full of people and the veranda was sort of like the stage and, and, and I can't remember much about the service. So the time after that and the weeks, the weeks after that were a bit of a blur really because it was a sort of a, we were A, not in routine and, and B, emotionally at sea, you know. So there was sort of a, the mem- your memory has nothing to anchor itself to. I mean, mum was pretty good because she didn't really break down. I didn't really ever see her cry in front of us. But I think she had probably sessions in her bedroom with people and and there were people coming from New Zealand, people, um, pilots, um, friends of dad. Um, you know, I, I, I became aware of a sort of a sub, text a wee bit of of the of the employer employee relationship that there was some sort of you know people came that were less friendly from in New Zealand the people that were in uniform or people that were there to talk to mum about official things they weren't that friendly towards us there was sort of a standoffishness which made me think they didn't know us very well because children kind of picked that up and then what sort of happened after that Leading on to Christmas, there was nothing much happening, really. Um, I mean, the bodies, from what I can understand now, which we didn't know then, Dad's body was unco- re- recovered on the 6th of December by Greg Gilpin and um, Trevor Horn, actually, was the um, police officer who recovered his body. Um, and Stu Layton found his ring binder in the wreckage, but um, we didn't know about that then because we didn't know anything about what was going on at the mountain, you know, how... We thought maybe they wouldn't even bring all the bodies back. We didn't know if they were even going to be doing that. So we didn't know anything. We actually knew nothing, <laughs> except that Dad that Dad and 256 other people were dead. You know, that was sort of the, was an imagined reality. So and then, yeah, Christmas was coming and then, you know, there was nothing really, nothing really to look forward to mm-hmm. about Christmas. I mean, sometimes Dad was away at Christmas, but he was always going to come back. And then suddenly now there was a whole future ahead of us with, with him not in it. Mm. So it sort of seemed a bit bleak. And, I mean, for me, you know, I lost my nan, but... This thing happened and then it was, for me, it was very much probably at arm's length. I just kind of went off to be a child. Mm. But for you and your siblings, that wasn't possible, was it? Well, not really. I mean, we, we wanted to still be children, but we couldn't really be children anymore, especially probably because Elizabeth and I were the eldest. Or I'm, I mean, I'm older than her by 18 months, but I, mean, I, I felt some degree of responsibility. I mean, Dad always said before we went away, you know, make sure you help Maria. You know, we always said, oh, yes, Dad, and we probably didn't. But, you know, I, I really felt that quite keenly that I should help her and mm. therefore I felt that I had to be a bit responsible. Um, at the same time, you know, I was wanting to, I don't know, I mean I'd had a party for my 15th birthday, which had been in February. I'd had a, I had a birthday party and I, when Dad was still alive and, and I had to have a list of people and there were gate crashes and it turned into quite a big party actually. But, and two people had a fight. Um, but, but um, you know that was that you know that was good that I'd had that party because I'd never had didn't have another one for a long for for a long time and would have been too hard for mum to manage because there's only one parent and you're down to one parent you feel it's 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 awful to try and ask too much of that one parent. I mean the inquiry started. Uh, I mean the Chippendale report came out initially. Um, I think by March 1980, it was pretty early on and, and, and the newspapers were all, that was the other thing at that time, the newspapers were all saying pilot error, you know, pilot error, the pilots caused the accident and we couldn't really understand why that was the case because we knew that Dad was really systematic and that he wouldn't make a mistake. 
you know, the mistake that he'd made must have been com- incredibly complicated because he wasn't the sort of person that would go, oh, well, you know, let's just whip down here and see what we can see. Um, so it was sort of a mystery to us as to what had gone on. And um, when the Chippendale report came out and blamed Dad and said, oh, it was uh, they're flying too low, we just sort of thought, it sort of seemed as if he wanted an out, a straightforward outcome so that he, he could get on with the job of just doing what he had to do next. And the outcome of Pilot Era was something that it was almost as if newspapers wanted that too. Everybody wanted to blame someone. We didn't know either at that time that there was a relationship between New Zealand and the um, Inspector of Air Accidents and the government, Mr Muldoon at the time. We didn't know that. I mean, Chippendale apparently got a round-the-world trip from New Zealand after that with, for his wife after that report was released. It was like a reward. And um, so luckily uh, Mum had already engaged Paul Davison at that point through her law firm, Keegan Alexander. Michael Friedlander, who was her lawyer, had advised her to take on Paul Davison, who was his junior barrister. Um, but she, he said he was extremely competent. My grandfather, who was also a lawyer from Vienna, had thought that maybe a young lawyer wouldn't be a good idea, that we probably needed a QC. But... Apparently, Michael Friedlander said he was excellent. So mum luckily had Paul Davison, the Collins family estate had Paul Davison to represent us as the Marne inquiry started, which was took it took place after the Chippendale report had been released. But in the meantime, we had a burglary in March. And that was strange because the house was sort of open when we came home from celebrating mum's birthday. It was the 29th of March, 1980. I came home just after mum had got home with my sisters and the doors were open in the house and the lights were off because the power had been switched off. And so it was a really, really weird feeling of the, a breeze blowing through a still house. Mm-hmm. You know, when normally you come home, there's, the house is still after you've been out, but there was a, there was a wind mm-hmm. blowing through the house. And immediately I thought, oh, this is, this is weird. And the, and the power, the, the fuses or the power had been switched off at the switchboard and and then we found bits and pieces everywhere, and then um, t- a couple of Persian uh, of mohair rugs had been taken off Mum's bed, and the stereo had been wrapped up, and and the mohair rugs and taken, um, and there was a photograph of Dad that was ripped up, and a, a small passport-sized photograph ripped up by her bed in an envelope, put back in the envelope, and torn in half. And um, I actually think that burglary was people, people, SIS people, um, looking for a copy of the flight plan to see whether there was one still in existence at home of, da- of the flight plan that Dad had been briefed on, which would have been, which would have proven that the pilots were flying down the sound instead of mentally flying down the sound instead of flying into Mount Erebus. So the, whoever the powers that be were didn't, A, want it to be recorded there'd been an official burglary, but that the burglary was to try and find evidence that mm. would operate against the airline and against New Zealand, against the government. Did you have to go to court? And give evidence, is that um, right? Yes, so we had to go to court. Actually, that was a separate occasion. We went to court in the US. Okay. Because the, and that was again in the early 1980s, the, um, there was a consortium of lawyers that advised us to go to court in the US because it was officially recognised that the US Navy, who ran the air traffic control at McMurdo, would have had the DC-10 on radar because they had a starlifter, a US starlifter, which was behind the DC-10 on radar. So the question was, why didn't they have the DC-10? Why wasn't the DC-10 advised of the fact it was coming in on the wrong side of Erebus? Mm. So the court case in the States was um, taken 
to the states by New Zealand lawyers in conjunction with American lawyers in the district court in Washington, D.C., which Elizabeth and I had to testify at because we'd been with Dad the night before the accident. And there was an attempt made to take the U.S. Navy to court for negligence, to sue the Navy, U.S. Navy. And the U.S. Navy actually got away with um, having it thrown out because, not because of lack of proof of evidence, but because New Zealand had not officially engaged them to give air traffic advice. Because there was an argument that if you're in an international airspace, no matter what the um, contractual obligations are with airlines, that air traffic control is supposed to provide um, clear information to pilots. But apparently in the Antarctic, that's not the case. And New Zealand was supposed to have engaged the um, advice of American air traffic down there, and they didn't, which meant that the Americans got off on a technicality. Mm. Um, but they, it, it was, Marne actually went down there and, and he found the Americans to be unhelpful with, about, with, with information regarding what actually happened that day. So nobody actually really knows whether the Americans were off duty or whether they were at lunch or whatever they were doing. They weren't monitoring what was happening with the DC-10, mm. which could have been one last opportunity to have warned them. Um, it's come out recently in a podcast that the Starlifter pilot behind or the navigator behind the plane was trying to get them on over VHF to tell them, you know, he'd worked out that they were going to hit the mountain didn't have a chance to tell them. Mm. So um, it was all another pity. But given the curvature of the earth, it was proven that the DC-10 would have been on the US radar. So it's another question that hasn't been answered. Mm. Um, And so Elizabeth and I, because the night before the accident, Elizabeth and I had, you know, we'd said to Dad, or I'd asked Dad, I said to him, you know, are you landing in the Antarctic? Because we didn't know. He was flying down to the Antarctic for a day and I happened to be you know at home we were passing by him working on his charts and we and I said to him are you landing down there and he said no we're not we can't land in the Antarctic because a it's a day trip but b there's an ice runway at Williamsfield which is too soft in the summer to take the weight of a DC-10 so we can't land in the Antarctic and then he said oh look I'll show you what we're doing tomorrow you know this is what we're doing this is where we're flying and Elizabeth and I thought oh god here we go another lecture you know we hadn't really asked about that. We were just sort of like, are you landing? That was the question. But anyway, as it transpired, it was probably just as well he did show us. And actually later we didn't even know what the second, what the importance of what it was that he told us at that time because we didn't know the relevance to later, to when we gave evidence later. Mm. And um, so he said he showed us the route he was taking and, and he talked about the um, – coast of Victoria land in the dry valleys, the DC-10 would fly down south down the uh, military route into, into, into McMurdo and on the right-hand side of the aircraft, the passengers would see the dry valleys and the coast of Victoria land, which were um, sort of at a bleak angle to the, to the, to the DC-10. So you look, could look up the dry valleys and I can remember thinking, oh, that's unusual. You know, the name dry valleys and Victoria land, I mean, they're not sort of regular type names, you know, they're, they're distinctive. Um, and then he said when the plane did a circuit at the bottom but over McMurdo and they flew over Scott's hut and Shackleton's hut, so they'd do, do a circuit and they'd come back up the same route and then the passengers on the left-hand side of the aircraft would see the, up the dry valleys. So I thought, oh, that's fair, you know, because that means everyone gets a look. Um, and then we sort of said good night, you know, night-night, see you tomorrow sort of thing, went to bed. So that was the, that was the end of that conversation. But that became evidence 
which to me clearly indicates still now when I think about it that he was flying, Dad was flying down the military route in his head, um, not into Mount Erebus. So that was something that was a great surprise and I don't think they knew, obviously, that they'd hit it, which is why there was no panic in their voices and why they hit it at full speed, um, 500 knots or whatever it was. Mm. Did any of you and your sisters, like, did kids at school say horrible things? Um, one of my, Elizabeth had to change schools because somebody did, mm. but not at the school I was at. She shifted the school I was at. And um, no, I think people were pretty pretty supportive. I mean, most people, most intelligent people understood what went, what happened. Mm. Um, I mean, the hard thing's always been the debate about it um, still rages amongst people. And there's still debate now, you know. The debate just doesn't stop and it just, we, I'm sick of it. Mm. I mean, I, you know, you get to a point where you can lead horses to water about the evidence and about the, about the information, about what was heard. And I, I'm a witness to history because I was there, you know, I went to the inquiry. I mean, I, I, I saw, I was present and in, in in amongst it. And, and in all honesty, I can say that whatever I've said has always been the truth. Um, but, you know, sometimes it gets hard to keep talking about it because you just can't convince some people. So I think there'll always be people like that and and it's almost as if you just got to be a decent person yourself and if other people aren't going to be, then that's actually not my problem. I can't, you know, there's only a limited amount of energy that we all exactly. have. But mum's fantastic. I mean, our mother was amazing. Mum's been a rock really all through it and possibly also because she had, you know, European ancestry. No parents were immigrants from Vienna. I mean, that a lot of relatives died in the Holocaust in Europe. Um, they were Jew- Jewish extraction. I mean, Jews basically, they had... They had to live a hard life, but actually quite psychologically quite tough, you know, um, to deal with a lot of things. So probably that was a good thing for her, that she was A, bright, but also B, emotionally quite strong, because that meant that she didn't crumble, which meant we didn't crumble. And if she had, then what would we have done? Because the other parent was dead. So, you know, her performance actually was really crucial to our success. She's quite refreshing in her views, and she loves life. You know, my mother's always loved it. Um Despite tragedy, she grabs it, you know, and she she makes the most of it. She doesn't wallow wallow in it. And Mm. she could have done. Mm. And she could have easily. I mean, she didn't take sedatives. She didn't ever take drugs. She didn't ever drink excessively. She's never really been a, she's never had a requirement of crutches to deal with things. And go go her. Um, You know, when I'm having my sort of glass of wine at the end of the day or at the end of the week and thinking, oh, God, I could do another one because, you know, it's had a bad week, you know. Mum doesn't need that to to deal with life, and that's a huge. It's a huge success to me. Is there ever a time in your life that Erebus isn't a big thing, or has it kind of shrunk over the years? Comes and goes out of focus, you know. I mean, I, I don't know how you find it, but I, I definitely think that t- sometimes my father's literally right by me. You know, he's on my shoulder, and I think, oh, what would dad? Oh, dad, you know, you must be this, this circumstance is just too friggy for you not to be around. You must have, you know, you must have. He must be here at the moment, or you know, I've sensed his presence. You know, after he died, it was I, I remember thinking because I, you know, we were all close to him, and I remember, and me being the eldest, I probably had the most time with him. But I remember I had a dream one night, um, probably six months after he died, and I remember thinking in this dream, he he came to me in this dream, and he just said, "I just don't know what's happened. I don't know what's, I don't know why I'm dead." It, it was as if he was in shock, like he didn't know what had happened, yet he didn't know why he died. You know, it was a sort of a strange. It was as if he was in some sort of state of mind of I know I'm I'm not I'm not with you, but I don't know why I'm not there and why I'm here and I don't know where I am. I don't know where he is. 
So not only were we shocked to be for him to be dead, but I think he was. I mean, if that's a funny way of putting it, but I actually don't think he had a clue that he was going to die and certainly would have wanted to come home. And so then, and then afterwards, probably a few months later, I had another dream where I, I remember going to bed and I remember thinking, oh, the, you know, just normal sort of go to bed and have a go to sleep. And I had this dream where he appeared to me in the dream and he said, um, all I saw this, was this colour and light and, and just sort of a, like a halo of light, almost looking through a tunnel, but not really a tunnel. It wasn't so much a tunnel, but more a, a big bright light. And I remember thinking, oh, wow, this is amazing. And and I heard him saying to me, you know, I can't begin to describe to you how wonderful this is, this place that I'm in. And I remember thinking, oh, that's good. You're happy. And he said, oh, it's fantastic. You know, I met these interesting people like St. Francis of Assisi. I don't know why he picked St. Francis, but he'd obviously been talking to him, <laughs> you know, in this place. And he said, oh, it's incredible, this place. It's just amazing. And I remember going, oh, it just felt the light and the colour. Everything was just amazing. It was just sort of some sort of revelation, I suppose, of, of how wonderful things could be, not on, not here, but there, wherever there was. And then I woke up and I thought, oh, it's okay, you know, he's happy, he's all right. He's, I, should, um, I, I woke up happy. And I remember thinking, but I can't be happy, I'm sad because he's not here. But I remember the feeling was happiness, even though reality was sad. And, and I remember being quite sort of confused by that. Well, you know, I sort of felt quite relieved that he was obviously happy wherever he was. Um, and then subsequent to that, I used to have dreams about him. Sometimes he'd be at the bottom of the garden or he'd, he'd sort of come in a car, but he couldn't get out of the car. You know, he couldn't, he, he knew we were there, but he couldn't come to us. So it was almost as if there was something between us that we, that meant he couldn't get to us, but that he wanted to. It was a strange sort of a thing. I don't think he's far away. I mean, I don't think he's ever been that far, but he's just not here. And and therefore it's hard to have conversations because they're always one way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think there's always optimism in life. I mean, I actually think that despite hardship, if we actually all, you know, a lot of people go through a lot of hardship and not just us, but obviously in the circumstance it relates to us. But, you know, I think in general, if people just believed in themselves enough to actually look inside themselves to try and work out how to strategize, how to deal with the circumstances, and if they couldn't find out how to deal with it, ask for help to help strategize, then I think we'd be a lot more successful with 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 um, dealing with stress and dealing with tragedy. I I, I I sort of think almost philosophy or or how to deal with life needs to be taught in school or something. You know that, and and I think, you know that we still like we still miss dad. Obviously, you know we still miss. You know the thing that sticks in my mind is is what I just mentioned is about how to cope, but also how to um, enjoy other people and the love of other people. That other people are very generous. Not everybody but there are real gems and they often come from places you don't expect them to be coming from. You know, people are kind and, and really, you know, people have recently, I've, I've talked to people who, who actually, whose who's presence I have known of or, or you know, I've been in a, in a situation where they've, you know, been in a, in a class, you know, an art group with me or, or people I've come across that I, I didn't have know had any connection to Erebus, but have suddenly have come up to me and said, I, just needed to tell you I, I knew your father. You know, I, I didn't know that they did, but, you know, the number of people that have told me stories about Dad or that I've come across quite randomly that have said, oh, I flew with him, he's such a nice person. He look, used to look after the young hosties that didn't know what, you know, how to look at, you know, that danced on the bar. He'd help them off and get them safely to their room. You know, he looked after people. He, he looked out for others. And the number of people that have said that to me subsequently, 40 years later still, you know, I, I'm still amazed by that. It's a type of miracle that people's memories still... Um, serve them well when, when it relates to something good 
uh, and that's kind of a life affirming. I think that's really important to remember. There's always goodness in the world, even when you don't think there is any, and you sometimes think life's really hard. There is, there is light. You just have to hang in there and um, wait until it appears, <laughs> like the dawn after the darkness. Thanks for listening to this episode of Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts. I'm Lizzie Oakes. Thanks to Scott Gillen, my audio engineer, and to Rima Media for their support. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with Carolyn Head, my older sister, who was living in London at the time of the crash. To subscribe, go to Erebus Engraved on Our Hearts on iTunes, Spotify, or erebusengravedonourhearts.com.